0: This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, Fiction Editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear a story from 1975 called Bluebell Meadow by Benedict Kiley.
1: What nosy neighbor had told somebody who told somebody who told the sergeant that she had bullets in the earthenware jug?
0: The story was chosen by Colin McCann, who is the author of seven books of fiction, including the National Book Award-winning novel, Let the Great World Spin. Hi, Colin. How are you doing? Good. So I preparing for this, I watched a bit of a documentary about uh, Benedict Kiley, in which you put him in this very limited pantheon of short story writers, which included uh, Raymond Carver and Chekhov and Hemingway. What is it about his work that puts him up there for you?
1: Well, I think he's one of the, the great Irish voices and not necessarily as known today as he should be. Was quite well known in the early seventies. He would get the you know, the front cover of the New York Times, he'd get stories in the New Yorker obviously. He talked a lot about Northern Ireland as things were unfolding up north and you know, the trouble started in nineteen sixty eight and went on for thirty years and most of his writing career looked at uh, the Troubles. But this is a really interesting story in that he's writing it in the early to mid-70s and things were sort of out of control. It's an odd love story that's highly political at its core as well.
0: Though it's set in a much earlier time. It's set set much earlier.
1: But then it leapfrogs forward 30 years. So it has that beautiful sort of saudade, that uh, nostalgia Mm -hmm. for, for, for what things used to be and what they might have been. It's also about scattering, about moving about like emigration in certain ways. I used to 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 go to Morehampton Road when I was in my early 20s and go hang out with uh, Ben Kylie in his mm-hmm. in his house. He would always be in his pajamas uh, early in the morning. He'd get up out of bed and he'd sit in his pajamas and write for a few hours. And then at lunchtime he was finished. And he'd get dressed and go down the street and he'd go to the pub and he would be surrounded by um, lots of younger writers who wanted to see, you know, where did this voice come from? Because he has a beautiful voice.
0: And he was also a journalist at one point. Is that is that how you met him?
1: He used to work with my father. He would often call around to, to my father and like he'd write bits and pieces for the newspaper. My father was a newspaper editor there. And I remember one story which was called A Ball of Malt and Madame Butterfly, which unfortunately was not in the New Yorker, um, <laughs> uh, but a story that just I read when I was 16 and it sort of stunned me that you'd be able to write that way. He chops and he moves and, and he flits around. Even in this story, there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of sharp movement from one place to the next and going back and forth. Technically, it's a really interesting story in the way that he switches tenses switches places, even perspective. And you don't know who the narrator is. There's lots of little things about it that I sort of adore. And it's, it's a little bit frustrating too, the story. Um, <laughs> but you see, the thing is that I carried it with me for all these years. And that's why I thought it would be a good one to read. I mean, it is, what, uh, 35 years old? But I read it probably 20 years ago and um, it stuck with me. The idea of this woman being given six bullets by her, uh, her lover, she's Catholic and he's Protestant and uh, never the twain shall meet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Kylie also wrote novels. You think of him mostly as a short story writer?
1: He was a beautiful short story writer. I mean, I do think that Prox Opera, which is a novella, is one of the most powerful pieces of fiction to ever emerge from the quote unquote troubles in in Northern Ireland. There were plenty of critics who looked at Kylie and said, you know, this is the real voice. Somehow he got lost in that sort of idea of the old grey eminence, that he was sort of old fashioned and he never was. He was very much at the edge of contemporary fiction. And a lot of the younger writers don't even know who he is. And I find that to be a pity because I think we got our voice from him. Mm-hmm. He in Ireland
0: it. too, they don't know him.
1: Even in Ireland, yeah. yeah. I, he allowed us our voices, if you will. He created the path.
0: Why do you think that, that some of his more or less contemporaries like O'Connor and, and John McGarren or William Trevor even are better known now than he is?
1: Well, they're, I mean, they're perfectly brilliant in, in, in their own right too. And he should absolutely be up there with um, O'Connor and Trevor and, and, and McGahern and, you know, Edna O'Brien as well. You know, so many, so many writers. And, you know, we go through fashions, don't we, with literature? Yeah. I mean, it'll come in, it'll come out. He's tough, though, you know, and, yeah. and he's very colloquial yeah. and uh, maybe the, there's a difficulty for people. He's hard to translate. That's another thing. So, you know, can't, it's hard to put him in French and German. And maybe he doesn't even translate to um, an American audience uh, all that well. It's very specifically Northern Irish.
0: So as you were saying, this, this story is something of a love story set in Northern Ireland in the 30s mm. between a Protestant boy and a, a Catholic girl. Mm. You've said a lot about it already, but do you think there's anything else people need to know before they hear it?
1: I think... The whole historical situation, you know, it it penetrates right through the heart of the story. My mum, who was Catholic, you know, grew up at the same time as the woman in the story. And she had to leave Northern Ireland and go to London in order to get a job. You know, being Catholic at that stage, you couldn't own land, you couldn't vote. There were all these things that were going on. So for a young Catholic woman to fall in love with a a Protestant man who's in the B specials, the sort of... um, paratroopers, if you will, would have been an extraordinary thing and a very difficult thing for anybody in the town.
0: Well, great. We'll talk more after the story. And now here's Colin McCann reading Benedict Kiley's story, Bluebell Meadow.
1: When she came home in the evening from reading in the park that was a sort of an island, the sergeant was waiting to ask her questions about the bullets. He had two of them in the cupped palm of his right hand, holding the hand low down, secretively. His left elbow was on the edge of the white-scrubbed kitchen table. The golden stripes on his blue-black sleeve were as bright as the evening sunshine on the old town outside. He was polite, almost apologetic at first. He said, I hate to bother yourself and your aunt and uncle, but it would be better for everybody's sake if you told me where you got these things. People aren't supposed to have them. "'Least of all girls in a convent school. "'There were six of them. "'The evening Lofty gave them to her. "'She had looked at them for a whole hour, "'sitting at that table, half reading a book. "'Her uncle and aunt were out at the cinema. "'She spread the bullets on the table and moved them about, "'making designs and shapes and patterns with them, "'joining them by imaginary lines, "'playing with them as if they were draughts "'or dominoes or precious stones.' It just wasn't possible that such harmless mute pieces of metal could be used to kill people. Then she had wearied of them, had put them away in an old earthenware jug on the mantelpiece and after a while she'd forgotten all about them. As she wrote to me from Detroit, thirty years later, they were the oddest gifts God knew for a boy to give a girl. This is how... The Park was a sort of an island. The river came out of deep water, lined and overhung by tall beaches, and round a right-angled bend to burst over a waterfall and a salmon leap on the right bank and above the fall. A sluice gate regulated the flow of a mill race a hundred yards downstream. The mill race was carried by aqueduct over a rough mountain stream that came down to join the river. Between river and race and mountain stream was a triangular park of five or six acres with seats by the watersides and swings for children. Her favourite seat was under a tall conifer and close to the corner where the mountain stream met the river. Because bluebells grew in the woods on the far side of the mill race. the place was called Bluebell Meadow. When the river was not in flood, a peninsula of gravel and bright sand guided the mountain stream right out into the heart of the current. Children played on the sand, digging holes, building castles, sending flat pebbles skimming and dancing like wagtails upstream over the smooth water. One day, Lofty was suddenly among the children, just as if he'd come out of the river, which is exactly what he had done. His long, black wader still dripped water, The fishing rod he held in his left hand while he expertly skimmed pebbles with the right dipped and twiddled above him like an aerial. The canvas bag on his back was sodden and heavy and had grass to keep the fish fresh, sticking out of the mouth of it. One of the small boys was doing rifle drill with a shaft of his net. She had never spoken to Lofty, but she knew who he was. When she tired of reading she could look at the river and dream, going sailing with the water or simply close her eyes, or lean back and look up into the tall conifer, its branches always restless and making sounds and going away from her like a complicated sort of spiral stairway. She had been told that it was the easiest tree in the world to climb, but no tree is all that easy if you're wearing a leg splint. She was looking up into the tree and wondering, when Lofty sat beside her, His waders were now dry and rubbery to smell. The rod, the net and the bag were laid on the grass, the heads of two sad trout protruding, still life that had been alive this morning. Her uncle, who kept greyhounds, argued that fishing is much more cruel than coursing. Somewhere in the happy river were trout that were hooked and got away, hooks now festering in their lovely speckled bodies. She thought a lot about things like that. Lofty sat for five minutes almost before he said, I asked Alec Quigley to tell you I was asking for you. He told me. What did you say? Did he not tell you? He said you said nothing, but I didn't believe him. Why not? You had to say something. If I said anything, Alec Quigley would tell the whole town. I dare say he would. He's the greatest gossip and clash bag from hell to Oma. I didn't know. You could have picked a more discreet ambassador. The words impressed him, he said. It's a big name for Alec Quigley. I never thought of him as an ambassador. What then? A go-between? A matchmaker? A gooseberry? They were both laughing. Lofty was a blonde, tall, freckled fellow with a pleasant laugh. He asked her, would she like a trout? I'd love one. I can roll it in grass for you and get a bit of newspaper in McCaslin's shop up at the waterfall. Who will I tell my aunt and uncle gave me the trout? Tell them nothing. Tell them you whistled and a trout jumped out at you. He left his bag and rod where they were and walked from the apex of the triangular park to the shop at the angle by the waterfall. He came back with a sheet of black parceling paper and wrapped up the trout very gently. He had long, delicate hands, so freckled that they were almost totally brown. The trout, bloody mouth gaping, looked sadly up at the two of them. Lofty said, ''I'd like to go out with you. I'm off now," here.'' So he laughed and handed her the trout and went on upstream toward the falls, casting from the bank at first. "'then wading knee-deep across a shallow bar of gravel "'and walking on across a green hill toward the deeps above the falls. "'She liked his long stride and the rod dipping and twiddling above him "'and the laden bag, even though she knew it was full of dead, gaping trout. "'She knew he was a popular fellow in the town. "'Yet she didn't tell her aunt and uncle who exactly it was "'had made her a gift of the trout. "'She said it was an elderly man and she wasn't quite sure of his name.' but she described him so that they'd guess he was a well-known fisherman, a jeweller by trade and highly respected in the town. Not that Lofty and his people were unrespectable. One Sunday, in the previous June, in an excursion train to Bundorn by the Western Sea, she had overheard Lofty's mother telling funny stories. As a rule, Protestants didn't go west to Bundorn but went north, to Portrush. The sea was sectarian. What were the wild waves saying? At Portrush, slew their or sloth or holy water, harry the papishes every one, drive them under and bait them asunder, the Protestant boys will carry the drum. Or at Bundoran, on St. Patrick's Day, jolly and gay, we'll kick all the Protestants out of the way, and if that won't do, we'll cut them in two and send them to hell with their red, white and blue. Nursery rhymes. She sat facing her aunt in the train and her uncle sat beside her. They were quiet, looking at all the long beauty of Lockhearn, which has an island wooded or pastoral for every day in the year. Her aunt, a timid little woman, said now and again, Glory be to God for all his goodness. Her uncle said just once, You should see Lake Superior, no end to it, as far as the human eye can see. Then they were all quiet, overhearing Lofty's mother, who had no prejudices about the religion of the ocean and who, with three other people, sat across the corridor from them. She had a good-natured, carrying voice and really was fun to listen to. She was saying... "'I'm a Protestant myself, Mrs. Dear, "'and I mean no disrespect to confession, "'but you must have heard about the young fellow "'who went to the priest to tell him his sins "'and told him a story that had more women in it "'than King Solomon had in the Bible, "'and the goings-on were terrible, "'and the priest says to him, "'Young man, are you married?' "'And the young fellow says back to him, "'dead serious and all, "'Nah, father, but I was twice in Fintona.' "'The train dived through a tunnel of tall trees.' The lake vanished, sunlight flashing through leaves made her close her eyes. Everybody in the train, even her aunt, seemed to be laughing. A man was saying, Fintona always had a bit of a name for wild women. Lofty's mother said, I was born there myself, but I never noticed that it was all that good. Nobody ever told me. She opens her eyes and the sunlight flickers down on her through the spiralling branches of the great conifer. Lofty's on the very tip of the peninsula of sand and gravel, demonstrating fly-casting to half a dozen children who are tailor-squatting around his feet. She's aware that he's showing off to impress her, and the thought makes her warm and pleased, ready to laugh at anything. But to pretend that she's unimpressed, she leans back and looks up into the tree in which the sunlight is really alive, creeping round the great bowl, spots of light leaping like birds from one branch to another. She thinks of the ombu tree that grows on the pampas of South America. Its trunk can be anything up to a hundred feet thick. The wood is so soft that when cut it rots like an overripe melon and is useless as firewood. The leaves are large, glossy and deep green, like laurel leaves, and also bitter. But they give shade from the bare sun to man and beast, and men mark their way on the endless plains by remembering this or that ombu tree. She has read about ombu trees. Her own tree is for sure not one of them. She sits up straight when her book is lifted from her lap. Lofty is sitting by her side. The children are pointing and laughing, He must have crept up on hands and knees, pretending to be a wild animal, a wolf, a prowling tiger. He's very good at capers of that sort. His rod and net lie by the side of the burn. It was April the first time he sat beside her. It is now mid-June. Her school will close soon for the holidays and she will no longer be compelled to wear the uniform, black stockings, pleated skirt of navy blue serge, blue gansy, blue necktie with saffron stripes, blue blazer with school crest in saffron on breast pocket, blue beret, black flat-heeled shoes. Even Juliet, and she was very young, didn't have to wear a school uniform. If she had, Romeo wouldn't have looked at her. Not that they are star-crossed lovers, or Lofty any Romeo. They haven't even crossed the mill-race to walk in the Bluebell Woods, as couples of all ages customarily do. She isn't shy of walking slowly because of the leg splint, but she knows that Lofty hasn't asked her because he thinks she might be. That makes her feel for him as she might feel for a witless younger brother who was awkward and a bit wild, for a lot of Lofty's talk doesn't go with the world of school uniforms that are mostly mother-of-god blue. What the saffron is for, except variety of a sort, she can't guess. Lofty's rattling, restless talk would lift Mother Teresa out of her frozen black rigidity. Lofty, with great good humour, Fingers the saffron stripes and says that, in spite of everything, she's a wee bit of an orange woman. They hold hands regularly. Lofty can read palms, a variant reading every time. They've kissed occasionally when the children who are always there have been distracted by a water hen or rat or leaping fish or a broken branch or an iceberg of froth from the falls. Don't look now he says one day, but if you swivel round slowly you'll see my three sisters in action. Beyond the mill race and against the fresh green of woods she can see the flash of coloured frocks, the glint of brass buttons and pipe-clayed belts. In those days it was only the wild ones who went with the soldiers. They're hell for soldiers, he says. Between the three of them they'd take on the Germans.' Lofty himself reads a lot of military books, campaigns and generals, Napoleon and Ludendorff, all the way from Blenheim to the Dardanelles. When he doodles, as he often does on the writing pad she always carries with her to make notes on her reading, to transcribe favourite poems, he doodles uniforms with every detail exact. Yet he listens to her when she reads poetry or the splendid prose of a volume of selected English essays from Caxton to Belloc. They're advancing on us, he says. They have us surrounded, enfiladed, debouched, and circumnavigated. We'll tell Marianne that you're with another, the Three Sisters Chorus. The three British soldiers who are with the sisters are, one of them from Sligo, one from Wexford and one actually from Lancashire in England, They all talk and laugh a lot and she likes them. The Lancashire lad climbs right up to the top of the conifer and pretends to see everything that's going on in the town and tells them about it. He has a lurid imagination. Then they go away toward the waterfall still laughing calling back about telling Marianne. She asks him who Marianne is. Lofty, who clearly likes his sisters, is not in the least embarrassed by the suggestion he has another woman. Oh, Marianne's nobody or nobody much. She has a name. She must be somebody. She's not really jealous, just curious. Marianne's a girl I met one day on the road beyond McCaslin's shop. You met nobody on the road. She was wheeling a pram. She's married to Mr. Nobody. It wasn't her pram. She's the nursemaid in Mooney's, the fancy bread bakery. There was a lovely smell of fresh bread. Had you a good appetite? Apple jelly, jam tart. That is a rhyme to which children, Protestant and Catholic, skip rope on the streets, but since the rest of it is, tell me the name of your sweetheart. She doesn't finish it and finds herself, to her annoyance, blushing. Lofty doesn't seem to notice. There were twins in the pram. I pushed it for her up the hill to the main road. Then she said... I bet you wouldn't do that for me if it was in the town on the courthouse hill where everybody could see you. I said, why not? And she said, Christian brothers' boys are very stuck up. I've met some that would do anything you'd let them if they had a girl in the woods or in the dark but that wouldn't be seen talking to her on the street. I didn't tell her I was a Presbyterian and went to the academy. Why not? She mightn't like a Presbyterian pushing her pram they laugh at that until the playing children turn and look and laugh with them. Cheerful voices call from beyond the mill race, where soldiers and sisters are withdrawing to the woods. She had listened to Lofty's mother again as the train returned from Bundoran that evening and the great romantic flat-topped mountains diminished into the distance. This time the storyteller faced her aunt and sat beside her uncle who had been talking about jerry-building in a new housing estate. Lofty's mother agreed with him. She had a shopping bag of sugar to smuggle back into the six counties where it cost more. The sugar was tastefully disguised under a top dressing of dulce. With content and triumph, Lofty's mother sang a parody popular at the time, South of the border, down Bundoran way, That's where we get the free state sugar to sweeten our tay. She was great fun. She had bright blue eyes and a brown hat with a flaring feather and a brown crinkly face. She said, Those houses are everything you say and worse. Fancy fronts and ready to fall. When you flush the lavatory in them, the noise is heard all over the town. Passers-by in the corridor stop to join the fun. The smuggled sugar is safely crossed the border. Her uncle is a tall, broad-shouldered man with a good grey suit, a wide-brimmed hat, two gold teeth and a drawl. Years ago, He was in the building trade in the United States and knows a lot about Jerry building. He gets on very well with Lofty's mother. It was well on toward the end of August when the black man sat on the bench beside her. She was looking sideways toward the bridge, over the mill race and laughing because two rough young fellows were running like hares before Mr. McCaslin's boxer dog. Mr. McCaslin was also water bailiff and park keeper The rough fellows had been using brutally one of the swings meant for small children so brutally that the iron stays that supported it were rising out of the ground. Mr. McCaslin had mentioned the matter to them. They had been offensive and even threatening to the old rheumatic man, so he hobbled back to his shop and sent the boxer dog down as his deputy. The pair took off as if all hell were behind them. It was funny, because the dog didn't bark or growl or show hostility, didn't even run fast, just loped along with a certain air of quiet determination and wouldn't, as far as she knew, savage anybody. But he was a big dog, even for a boxer, and the retreat of the miscreants was faster than the keystone cops. She laughed so much that the book fell on the grass. The black man picked it up and sat down beside her. She thought of him as a black man not because he was a negro, but because her uncle told her that he was a member of the Black Perceptory, which was a special branch of the Orange Order. She had seen him walking last 12th of July in the big parade in memory of the Battle of the Boyne. He had worn the black sash with shining, metallic, esoteric insignia attached, as had the other men who marched beside him. The contingent that followed wore blue sashes and were supposed to be teetotalers, but her uncle said that was not always so. One of the blue men, a red-faced, red-headed fellow, was teetering and might have fallen if he hadn't been holding on to one of the poles that supported the banner. The drums drummed, the banners bellied in the breeze, the pipes and fifes and brass and accordions played. It is old, but it is beautiful, and its colours they are fine, it was worn at Derry, Ockram, and a skillin' and the boyin', my father wore it in his youth in bygone days of yore, and on the twelfth I'll always wear the sash my father wore. The name of the black man who sat beside her was Samuel McClintock, and he was a butcher. It was said about him for laughs that if the market ran out of meat, the town could live for a week on McClintock's apron, blue with white stripes. That August day and in the public park, he naturally wasn't wearing the apron. He had a black moustache, a heavy blue chin, a checked cloth cap, thick soled boots, thick woolen stockings, and whipcord knee breeches. He said, The dog gave those ruffians the run. The way he said it took the fun out of it. She said, Yes, Mr. McClintock. She wished him elsewhere. She half looked at her book. She was too well reared to pick it up from her lap and ostentatiously go on reading. The river was in a brown fresh that day, the peninsula of sand and gravel not to be seen, nor lofty, nor the children. The black man said, Plenty water in the river today. She agreed with him. It was a public park in a free and easy town and everyone had a right to sit where he pleased. Yet this was her own seat under the tall tree, almost exclusively hers, except when Lofty was there. The black man said, The Scotchies have a saying that the salmon's her ain when there's water, but she's ours when it's out." He explained, That means that often they're easier to catch when the water's low. He filled his pipe and lit it. The smell of tobacco was welcome. It might have been her imagination, but until he pulled and puffed and sent the tobacco smell out around them, she had thought that the resinous air under the tree was polluted by the odours of the butcher's shop. He said that the salmon were a sight to see leap in the falls when they went running upstream. She said that she had often watched them. I am told you're very friendly with a well-known young fisherman of my persuasion. Who, for instance... You know well. That's what I want to talk to you about. It's a serious matter. Being friendly with a fisherman? Don't play the smarty with me, young lassie. Even if you do go to the convent's secondary school, young people now get more education than's good for them. Lofty at the academy and you at the convent have no call to be chumming it up before the whole town. Why not? But it occurred to her that they hadn't been chumming it up or anything else before the whole town. What eyes could have spied on them on this enchanted island? His uncle's a tyler, that's why. I never knew he had an uncle. His mother's brother is a tyler and very strict. What's a tyler? I shouldn't repeat it, Lassie, but I will, to impress on you how serious it is. A tyler he is, and a strict one wasn't it him, spoke up to have Lofty let into the B-specials? Don't ask me, I never knew he was a B-special. But one day for a joke she remembered he had given her that handful of bullets. The nuns wouldn't tell you this at school, but the B-specials were set up by Sir Basil Brook to hold Ulster against the Pope and the Republic of Ireland. The nuns for sure hadn't told her anything of the sort. Mother Teresa, who was very strong on purity and being a lady and not sitting like a man with your legs crossed, had never once mentioned the defensive heroisms of the B-specials who, out in country places, went about at night with guns and in black uniforms holding up Catholic neighbours and asking them their names and addresses, which they knew very well to begin with the lofty she knew in daylight by this laughing river didn't seem to be cut out for such nocturnal capers. If his uncle knew that the two of you and you, a Catholic girl, were carrying on, there'd be hell upon earth. But we're not carrying on. Speak with respect, young lassie. A tyler, although I shouldn't tell you the secret, is a big man in the Orange Order at detecting intruders. His obligation is this, I do solemnly declare that I will be faithful to the duties of my office and I will not admit any person into the lodge without having first found him to be in possession of the financial password or without the sanction of the worshipful master of the lodge. Then, after a pause, he said with gravity, And I'm the worshipful master. He was the only one of the kind she'd ever met or ever was to meet and she did her best although it was all very strange there by the river and the rough stream and under the big tree to appear impressed. Yet all she could think of saying was but I'm not interfering with his tiling. Then she was angry and close to tears although it was also funny. For all I care he can tile the roofs and floors and walls of every house in this town. The big man hadn't moved much since he sat down, had never raised his voice, but now he shouted, Lassie, I'll make you care. The B-specials are sworn to uphold Protestant liberty and beat down the Fenians and the IRA. I'm not a Fenian, nor an IRA. You're a Roman Catholic, aren't you? And there isn't any other sort. Sir Basil Brook says that Roman Catholics are 99% disloyal and that he wouldn't have one of them about the house. Sir, who's it? No cheek, glassy. Didn't he sit up a tree at Cullibrook all night long with a gun waiting for the IRA to attack his house? Didn't he found the B-specials to help the police to defend the throne and the Protestant religion? What was it to her if Sir Somebody or Other spent all his life up a tree at Cullibrook or anywhere else? The Lancashire soldier had climbed her tree and been as comic as a monkey up a stick. The black man calmed himself. Your own clergy are dead set against mixed marriages, he said. We weren't thinking of marriage. What of then? Silliness and nonsense. The young have no wit. What would Mother Teresa say if she heard you were keeping company with a Protestant? Who would tell her? I might, for your own good and for lofty. He knocked the ash out of his pipe and put it away. The pleasant tobacco smell faded. She smelled blood and dirt and heard screams and knew, with a comical feeling of kindness, that she had been wrongly blaming him for bringing with him the stench of the shambles. There was a piggery at the far end of the field beyond the river, and the wind was blowing from that direction. That's the piggery, she said. It's a disgrace.' Time and again I've said that on the town council. You must have read what I said in the papers. It's a sin, shame and scandal to have a piggery beside a beauty spot. Not that I've anything against pigs in my business in their own place. He stood up and patted her on the shoulder. He was really just a big, rough, friendly man. You don't want him put out of the specials or the lodge itself, he said. Why should he be? These are deep matters. But they tell me, you read a lot. You've the name for being one of the cleverest students in this town, Protestant or Catholic. So I'll talk to you, all for the best, as if you were a grown-up and one of my own. It is possible but very difficult for a convert to be accepted as a member of the Orange Order. He was as good as standing at attention. He was looking over her head toward the waterfall. A convert would have to be of several years standing, and his background would have to be carefully screened. His admission would have to be authorised by the Grand Lodge. They'd have to go that high, like Rome for the Catholics. No convert can get into the black preceptory if either of his parents is still living in case the Roman Catholic Church might exert pressure on a parent. He was reciting, like the sing-song way in which in school the children learned the Catechism. A convert who was even a Protestant clergyman was blacked out because one of his parents was still living and there is automatic expulsion for dishonouring the institution by marrying a Roman Catholic. The great tree creaked its branches above them. The brown water tumbled on toward the town. You see what I mean, lassie? She supposed, she saw. In a way, she was grateful, he was trying to help. He shook her hand as if they were friends forever. He went off toward the waterfall so that, without turning round, she could not see him walking away and he could not, thank God, see her laughing. For sweet-hearted Jesus Fount of love and mercy, to thee we come, thy blessings to implore. But it was comic to think of him marching up the convent grounds. He should wear his black sash and have a fife and drum before him, with the holy white statues to left and right, and a Lourdes grotto as high as Mount Ergal to relate all about the love-life of Lofty and herself to Mother Teresa, who had a mouth like a rat-trap and a mind to match a worshipful master and a most worshipful reverend mother, and never or seldom the twain shall meet. She was an odd sort of a girl. She sat around a lot and had read too many books. It was funny also to think of his daughter, Gladys, a fine, good-natured brunette with a swingin' stride, a bosom like a viking prow, and a dozen boyfriends of all creeds and classes. Nothing sectarian about Gladys, who was one of his own kind and the daughter of a worshipful master. Somebody should tell the Tyler to keep an eye on her. But she was too clever to be caught, too fast on her feet, too fast on her feet. As she walked slowly past the orange hall on the way home, she thought that she would have a lot to tell to lazy, freckled, lovable lofty. The Orange Hall was a two-storey brownstone building at a crossroads on the edge of the town. High on its wall, a medallion image of William of Orange on an impossibly white horse rode forever across the Boyne. The two old cannons on the green outside had been captured from the Germans in the Kaiser War. In there, Lofty's Lodge met, and it was a popular joke that no man could become a member until he rode a buck-goat. Backways up the stairs. Sometimes in the evenings bands played thunderously in there, practicing for the day in July when they marched out, banners flying. It was crazy to think that a man on a white horse riding across a river more than two hundred years ago could now ride between herself and Lofty, or, for that matter, although Mother Teresa would have a fit if she thought that a pupil of hers could think of such things, another man on a chair or something being carried shoulder-high in the city of Rome. All this she meant to mention to Lofty the next time he came to the seat under the tree, but all she could get around to saying was, Lofty, what's a tyler?" He had no rod and net and was dressed, not for fishing, in a new navy blue suit. The children called to him from the gravel, but he paid no attention to them. At first he pretended not to hear her, so she asked him again. He said that a tiler was a man who laid tiles. That was the end of that. Then it was winter. One whole week the park was flooded. She couldn't exactly remember when it was that Lofty had given her the bullets. It was all so crazy to think that Lofty's laughing mother could have a brother who went about spying on people and nosing them out. What eyes had spied on Lofty and herself on the enchanted island? What nosy neighbour had told somebody who told somebody who told the sergeant that she had bullets in the earthenware jug? If you don't tell me, the sergeant said, it will be awkward for all concerned. What would Mother Teresa think if she knew you had live bullets in an earthenware jug? It wasn't possible to control the giggles. What in the holy name of God would Mother Teresa think if the sergeant and the worshipful master descended on her simultaneously? What would she say? How would she look? Keeping live bullets in a jug must be one of the few things that she had not warned her girls against. You'll have to come down to the barracks with me. I'll walk ahead and you follow, just in case the people are passing remarks. They might think I'm arresting you. What are you doing? Ach! I'd like you to make a statement. It's not a crime to have bullets, not for a young lady like you, who wouldn't be likely to be using them but we have a duty to find out where they came from. My son Reggie speaks highly of you. Reggie, the footballer, you know? She knew. It was a town joke that the sergeant couldn't speak to anybody for ten minutes without mentioning Reggie, who parted his hair up the middle, wore loud scarves and played football very well. It was clear that the sergeant thought that to be thought well of by Reggie was a special distinction.' Old, low, white houses line the hill that goes up from the brook and the cooperative creamery to the centre of town. The sergeant plods on twenty yards ahead of her. The town is very quiet. His black leather belt creaks and strains to hold him together. The butt of his pistol, the black baton case shine. Back to the wall in the day room, Lofty sits, pale and nervous, on a creaking cane chair. She has never noticed before that he has a stutter. Another sergeant sits behind a desk and makes notes. Two young constables are laughing in the background. The black man comes in and says, I warned the two of them. Her own sergeant says, there wasn't much harm in it. Not for the girl, says the man behind the desk but for him, a breach of discipline. Lofty assuredly never stuttered when he talked to her by the meeting of the waters. Did you tell them that I gave you the bullets? Dear God, it wasn't a crime to give me bullets. Did you tell them? I did not. They said you did. So? Her own sergeant looks ashamed and rubs his moustache. The other sergeant says, Case closed. Then her uncle walks in and so hopping mad that he seems to have a mouthful of gold teeth. He talks for a long time and they listen respectfully because he's a famous man for keeping running dogs that he feeds on brandy and beef. He says over and over again, you make a hell of a fuss about a few bullets. A breach of discipline, says the man behind the desk. A hell of a fuss. Damn nonsense! Nonsense! says her uncle, and repeats it many times as they walk home together. But all the same, they'll put him out of the specials, he says, and I dare say he shouldn't have been fooling around, giving away government issue. Over the supper table, he remembers the time he had been a policeman in Detroit. Some Negro trouble then, and this rookie policeman from Oklahoma was on patrol with a trained man. The rookie has no gun, so they're rushed by twenty black men and the first rock-thrown clobbers the trained man unconscious. But the Oklahoma guy, he stoops down, takes the pistol out of the other man's holster and shoots six times and kills six black men. One, two, three, four, five, six. He didn't waste a bullet. Sacred heart, have mercy, says her aunt. What did the other black men do, uncle? They took off for home and small blame to them. He was a cool one, that rookie, and a damn good shot. Here, in this place, they make a hell of a fuss over a few bullets. I told him so. Lofty came, never again, to the tall tree. They met a few times on the street and spoke a few words. She left the town after a while and went to work in London. Once, home on holidays, she met Lofty and he asked her to go to the pictures. And she meant to but never did. The Hitler War came on. She married an American and went to live in, of all places, Detroit. Her uncle and aunt and the sergeant and the worshipful master and the tyler and, I suppose, Lofty's mother and old McCaslin and his dog died. Remembering her, I walked the last time I was in the town to revisit Bluebell Meadow. The bridge over the mill race was broken down to one plank, Rank grass grew a foot high over most of the island. The rest of it was a wide track of sand and gravel where the river, in fierce flood, had taken everything before it. The children's swings and all the seats were gone, smashed some time before by reluctant young soldiers from the north of England's cities doing their national service. Repair work had been planned, but then the bombings and murders began. No laughing Lancashire boy in British uniform will ever again climb the tall tree. For one thing, the tree is gone. For another, the soldiers go about in bands, guns at the ready, in trucks and armoured cars. There are burned out buildings in the main streets and barricades and checkpoints at the ends of the town. As a woman said to me, nowadays we have gates to the town. Still, other towns are worse. Straban, which was on the border and easy to bomb is a burned-out wreck, and Nuri where the people badly needed jobs and factories and not ruins, and Derry is like Dresden on the day after. When I wrote to her about this, she said, among other things, that she had never found out the name of that tall conifer.
0: That was Colin McCann reading Blue Bell Meadow by Benedict Kiley. The story appeared in the magazine in 1975 and can be found in the Collected Stories of Benedict Kiley, published by David R. Godin. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies, and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation.
0: So, Colin, why do you think the girl in this story rejects the Romeo and Juliet analogy? In so many ways, it, it does work. This is Romeo and Juliet adapted to Northern Ireland before the Troubles.
1: I think she's a little smarter than that. I think she's also got that that knowledge of the the, the sectarian divide between them. She's kind of sassy. I like her sassiness and and, and she's an older voice than her years. Mm -hmm. And um, I think she has a fair idea right from the beginning that her and Lofty are not going to work out. They won't be sitting in that tree for years and years and years and they won't run off into the sunset. Uh, She has a good idea that she will have to leave. And, and, and go elsewhere, which, of course, she eventually does in that stunning, beautiful ending when when Kylie's voice really seems to come in to the fore. He's great at talking about sadness and, and yet being sort of funny at the same time.
0: And, of course, the, the tragedy here is not that these star-crossed lovers end up dead, but that they never get a chance to develop their love. Exactly. It's, it gets put on hold. Exactly. But I also felt a sort of slight... Waves of the Tempest here, you know, this mm. kind of enchanted island with which young love is sort of broken up by the influx of forces from outside.
1: Right. It's almost like Dermot and Gráinne, the ancient Irish myth of, you know, uh, moving through the woods and, and, and getting away from the world and one's love being able to, to triumph over the environment that that's there. But Kylie's more cynical than that.
0: You mentioned earlier this issue of never knowing who the narrator is, but you you also seem to think the narrator is Kylie.
1: Yeah, Ben moved from Oma down to Dublin and um, I think he moved there in order to be able to talk about his hometown. I remember he would tell me stories about um, they had a a distillery on the on the banks of the River Struel, and an illegal distillery bootlegging, and he was telling me a story one night about how they they dumped all the potchine or the moonshine into the river, and Ben would be holding forth in the pub, and he'd say things like, "And all the fish were singing along the banks of the River Struul." <laughs> And he was wild. He was fantastic. He could pull in quotes from ancient mythology, Irish mythology, he could speak Osquelga in Irish. And then he spent a good deal of time in the American South. He was in Atlanta and he taught in some colleges over here. And he would bring all these strands together. It was an incredible thing to sit down and listen to him because he'd go off in these tangents and you 'd sure he'd never get back. <laughs> and somehow He would always get back. He'd weave this perfect fabric. But there were times you'd think that the the string was just unravelling in an odd direction. There's not many characters like him Mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. Our stories are more logical. Our stories seem to have more manners. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not exactly sure why.
0: So do you think there's a logic to the story or do you think it's more of a, a ramble?
1: There's a ramble in it. I love the ramble in it. It's difficult at times because of the way it switches and, and, and the long time that we spend, say, with McClintock and we spend less time with Lofty, actually, in the story than we do with, uh, with McClintock. And you can sense Ben having fun and pushing the limits and, and, and going to the edge. But when he talks about rivers and when he talks about light and when he talks about the old nursery rhymes as well. I love doing the, the old nursery lines. It's great fun. <laughs> it brings back that music. There's such a sing-song quality to, to what he wants to do. And I think Ben was very much like one of the ancient Shanachees, like the old Irish storytellers who would sit around by the fire and they would tell a long, long story. Sometimes... Traditionally, it would be for days and days and days. And Ben was well known, actually, for going off on a train and disappearing for eight or nine days with the other journalists of his time in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and uh, then appearing back, you know, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> fresh, or not so fresh, <laughs> or a little, fresh, worse, for you know, a little <laughs> worse for wear afterwards. <laughs> they were interesting times.
0: Well, you know, he gives us so much so much of that detail of the time, from the, the nursery rhymes to this you know, the fresh grass put in the in the bag to keep the fish fresh yeah. and all these little details. And yet he doesn't give us some quite fundamental details, including the girl's name. Right. And why she has a leg splint, you know, and why she lives with her aunt and uncle and not exactly. her parents. And what do you think is going on there? What do you think her backstory is?
1: I've thought quite a lot about it. I mean, what happened to the folks? There's nothing there. What happened... To her, to her leg—is the leg splint permanent? So he leaves all this mystery there, and I think that's part of the beauty of it. I think that's why it keeps kicking back on me, and, and I remember it. I particularly just remember, you know, the bullets—the six bullets. What an odd thing mm-hmm. for Lofty to do, and we don't actually know why he gives her those bullets. They're not a love gift, as, right. they, as they say.
0: What do you think he's doing? Is he trying to impress her? I mean, it's also a sign of the power to inflict violence that his, you know, his group has on hers.
1: Exactly. Well, you know, don't say it with flowers, say it with bullets. (laughs) I think there was a certain amount of a power play going on there as well and a certain reminder. But I think it might have just been also that adolescent thing. It's like, look what I have. Right. And isn't this astounding?
0: There's the old rule in fiction, the Chekhovian rule. If a gun comes up in the first act, it's going to be fired by the end of the... Of the play, and here these so these bullets come up, and are they fired? No, but six bullets are fired, in Detroit at six black men who are really black men, not as opposed to McClintock. Right. What is that anecdote doing in this story?
1: Well, I think that's quite, quite beautiful. I think that's where the story shifts and becomes um, an American story and also a story about emigration and also a story about the deepest levels of trouble that we have in societies that not just say Northern Ireland, but also over here. And those six bullets get used one, two, three, four, five, six, and he counts them out. And of course, the the word in Ireland for a Protestant would have been a, a black man um, mm-hmm. or depending on what side you were on, you would right. call the other a black person. So, of course, McClintock is not really black, as he says in the story. But then these bullets get used. Um, and I think Kylie is saying, you know, this this sadness is universal. These things, these things come home to roost in all sorts of ways. And we must be able to look at ourselves in proper deep ways, in order to understand what's going on. And of course, you know, when he's writing in the early 70s, you've got civil rights, you will have things happening on the campuses of, um, you know, American universities. And I think he's making a a statement about this sort of universal suffering and sadness that we have.
0: And do you think it's this moment, this romance with Lofty and, and how it ends, that makes this girl so convinced she's got to get out of Ireland. I mean, she got first to London and then she marries an American and moves, funnily enough, to Detroit. Is it this that triggered that or was this always there in her?
1: I think it was always there in her. I mean, as I say, to be a young Catholic woman at that stage, if you wanted to, to get on in, in, in Northern Ireland and get a job, you nearly always had to leave. Like, So, for example, my mum and her sisters, virtually all of them apart from one who stayed on the family farm, left Ireland. Some came to America. My mum went to London, eventually went back to Dublin. But this was the rule for a lot of the young girls. And I think the thing was that she just knew the impossibility of being with Lofty. And I think she was on a bit of a lark as well. I think she was sort of enjoying herself and and taking it easy. And she knew full well that this wouldn't work out. And that's why I like her sassy replies that, 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 that come up.
0: Which are surprising to me too, though, because, you know, these are real bullets. The, the B-specials yeah. do exist. There is violence brewing and, and liable to explode. And yet she's pretty irreverent with McClintock. She doesn't take him very seriously, even when he's, he's quite threatening. Why is that?
1: Yeah, she calls him a, at one stage. He, he seems to be a big, soft man with you know, uh, with a rough edges. But
0: um, even though he's the butcher, he smells like blood. I mean, it, yeah, he's, that, a, he's an ominous figure. He
1: is a really ominous figure, and especially if you know Irish history. When later on in the in the eighties, the Shankill Butchers came along, and they were infamous for they were a Protestant gang that would um, cut up their victims in the most gruesome, extraordinary, horrible ways. And 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 Kylie seemed to be prescient in in certain ways, he's sort of ahead of things. When he wrote Prox Opera which is about a proxy operation where they force a school teacher to drive a car into his hometown with a bomb in the in the back of it, the IRA forced him to do it. It then happened a couple of times afterwards. So Ben had his finger on the pulse, and he was just sad at everything that was unfolding in the north. He wasn't pro-British, he wasn't pro-IRA, he wasn't. You know, he never uh, laid claim to any sides. He he maddened a lot of people because he is that perfect figure who is the essence of intelligence and is able to hold two contradictory ideas in the palms of his hands at the exact same time to be Protestant and Catholic and and, and to be ecumenical Mm -hmm. uh, in his despair, if you will, and his sadness at all that sort of happened in Northern Ireland.
0: Though he himself was Catholic and for a time studied to be a
1: priest. He studied to be a priest. He had spinal tuberculosis and, 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 and was in hospital then for uh, about six months and decided that it wasn't for him. And he went out and he got married and and he only died a couple of years ago and was always a great character around Dublin, who a fantastic character to see. You'd see him shambling along uh, through Donnybrook on the Morehampton Road, you know, with a couple of bottles in, in the bags, either going home or back and forth. But, but always, you know, with books around him and, you know, people calling in to see him. He was a, a, adored, maybe in some ways, I don't know if you'd agree, but he was a writer's writer and a musician's writer as well. It's almost like he couldn't sing, but so he had to then sing on the page.
0: As you pointed out, that very last bit, the last few paragraphs where he brings us up to what was then the present for him mm. is both, well, it's both a piece of journalism in a sense and his poem. You know, it's a it's completely separate from the rest of the story. Yeah,
1: I'd love to be able to do that. I think it's really brave what he does at the end of the story when that new voice comes in. That's what makes it stick, I think. That's the glue in the story that, that you walk away with. And then maybe six months from now, you'll remember Mm-hmm. this particular story and the sadness that's there uh, or 6 years or 10 years from now and that to me is the mark of good literature that it kicks back that you you feel that impact years removed from the from the text
0: that's the the destruction of the garden of eden yeah.
1: yeah i mean i'll be honest i mean when i when i reread the story it, it's a tough story to read and what it felt like was that story has a beautiful aftertaste but it's a difficult one to chew on <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah And so in the process of reading it, I thought, wow, this is jumping. There's all sorts of really interesting things happening. It's possibly easier to read on the page. But I'm so happy that you give a chance for for Ben to come back because I would love for people to go out and buy his, you know, collected stories and to look at his work and for him to be acknowledged as a master of Irish literature. If there's any one writer that I would like to sort of sing back into a good place, it would be Ben.
0: Well, I I hope this podcast will do some of that. I'm sure it will. Well, thanks, Colin. Thank you. Colin McCann is the author of Zoli, Dancer, and other novels and story collections. You can subscribe to this podcast or download previous episodes in the iTunes store. Also, the tablet edition of the magazine is available in the App Store, and it's free to subscribers. In the tablet edition, you can hear authors read their own stories as you read along. You can also download the weekly audio edition of The New Yorker through iTunes or Audible.com or join the conversation on our Facebook page. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by NewYorker.com and Curtis Fox Productions. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.